0: In this episode of the Smart Community Podcast, I have a great chat with James Pete, the Chief Digital Officer at Moreton Bay Regional Council in Southeast Queensland. James tells us about his background in architecture and passion for using technology to help make things better, and how this has led him to his role in local government. James and I discuss what really sparked his interest in the smart community space and why he sees this concept as so important. Firstly, because digital disruption is happening and we need to keep up but also because of the benefits and efficiencies it can provide in local council for things like asset management. James then shares with us how he sees his region embracing these concepts and a number of projects he's currently working on. James and I then talk about the importance of both having OT, operational technology, as well as an IT team, and why councils need to be planning for both those skill sets now. We finish our chat discussing the big opportunities to further integrate across levels of government and the private sector, as well as the emerging trend of data standards and whether they're even necessary. As always, we hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Welcome to the smart community, smart regions, smart towns and smart cities. It's where we live, work and play with smart communities. The future starts today. Big data, smart mobility, emerging trends galore. The smart community podcast is what you're looking for. Hello, James. How are you today?
1: I'm um, pretty good. How are you?
0: Fabulous. Let's jump straight in. And can you tell us about your background and what you're passionate about?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, um, after school finished, I studied architectural drafting and I worked in and around architectural practices for about 25 years. Firstly, as a draftsman and then moving gradually into CAD and CAD management and then ultimately into IT management. So in 2011, I started working with Moreton Bay Regional Council as the manager of ICT, and during my time in that role, it was becoming increasingly clear that um, technology uh, included more than the typical technology was sort of getting out of corporate IT, um, and it was touching all sorts of other areas—not you know, the areas that we'd had not had in, had involvement with in relation to corporate IT. So things like open data were becoming a thing, sensors uh, for all sorts of things producing all sorts of data, and then considering existing technologies that we, we had as a council like CCTV, building management systems, flood management systems, climate gauges, et cetera. So it was recognised by the organisation that this was an area that we needed to focus on. It was an area that we hadn't focused on in the past, so they created the role that I'm in now, which is Chief Digital Officer, and I've been doing that for about four years. I think it was sort of 2015 or so that I... I started in that role.
0: Mm, yeah, cool. And what are you passionate about?
1: Well, um, I do have a passion about using technology in a smart way to help us make better decisions. And I guess my, my history is that in every sort of situation in, you know, along my employment path, there have been times where uh, there's a problem and the problem can actually be easily solved And a solution found with a little bit of, uh, you know, technology, you know, a simple example is when I started working in CAD management for an architecture firm, they had this quite a convoluted dimensioning standard. If you've ever worked in an engineering or an architectural office, there's different ways of dimensioning drawings. It's quite a convoluted standard that they had and everybody was struggling with it and it was a, simply a matter of customizing the CAD systems to give us buttons that did what the standard dictated and really simple solutions like that along the way made life easy for people and that's really essentially in a nutshell what I'm passionate about how you can use technology to uh, to make things better.
0: Mm. You've kind of answered this already but what kind of sparked your interest in this smart city space?
1: Yeah, well, having, having that heritage in the built environment and then significant technology experience along the way, it's been a very good fit for me. I've also, also found it very enjoyable moving sort of back out of corporate IT into smart cities, meant that I'm, I'm bringing my technology knowledge with me, but being able to apply it in the built environment, that's been quite a, a nice change in my career personally. And so in that context, and again, reflecting on sort of what I'm passionate about with IT, Because there's all these new types of data streams heading in our direction, we can actually use them and not just, you know, management hunch to inform our decision making. And so for local government with so many assets across the region from roads to buildings and parks and even trees, there's a huge potential across the board to, to really improve how we deliver our services, manage our assets, because we've now got a new kind of data that we haven't had before.
0: Mm. So what is a smart city to you?
1: Well, um, I guess my views are largely formed by the context that I'm currently in. There's been lots of different definitions around the place and there's often an opinion that to be a, a smart region or a smart community, it's a way to attract investment into the area. But as a suburban council, Moreton Bay being a suburban council, we, we're probably less of a defined identity as the likes of, say, Brisbane Gold Coast and the Sunshine Coast. So attracting investment due to us being smart is is less of a compelling argument. So instead, for us, doing more with less is our main driver. And that means using data to better manage things and also using smarter ways to engage with our community. So that means that there's a range of things that we're doing from installing sensors all over the place to improving digital communications channels with the community, you know, using artificial intelligence and, and things like that. And also replacing our backend systems and that that's to increase the speed and efficiency of the council as an organization itself and all of those things together really they they're around uh, meeting the, the consumer expectations that um, constantly are increasing
0: mm. yeah I heard um, I think I've said this on the podcast before but I was talking to somebody in the council and it's like the the graph of consumer expectations or customer expectations or community expectations rising and rising but the budget's unfortunately going the other way, and that smart bit is actually in the middle there, uh, where we can continue to or in, continue to serve and then enhance the service that we provide, but then using smart technology so that we're not continually increasing our costs as well. So, why do you think that this smart community concept is important?
1: It's digital disruption, and digital disruption is everywhere. And the term smart city really is local government's response to that and it's it's about rethinking the way we do things and using new types of data that we haven't before and i guess it's really important in how we as a council deliver services so for example you know for decades the way we have say maintained a fleet of assets is by doing scheduled maintenance and the reason we've had to do that is because we we know that the typical you know, mean time between failure of an asset and we therefore make sure that we're keeping on top of the asset and to make sure it's serviceable. But with data, it can tell you when it needs uh, servicing. It can tell if it's a bin, it can tell you when it needs emptying. If it's a piece of mechanical equipment, it can predict failure before the failure occurs. So we're actually able to shift from a schedule-based approach to a proactive or predictive-based approach. And that that that's effectively it's efficient, but it's also more effective because you're maintaining things when they need maintenance only, rather than potentially missing the opportunity and it fails before you get to it.
0: Yeah, it's like prevention rather than a cure. I guess when humans making that decision, it's subjective based on experience, based on those type of things. Which all those things, which you know, sometimes needs to be factored into the equation when we're talking about nuances in road design and stuff like that. But I agree in going back to your initial point of like just adding something simple that's based on a standard. So then you're not using up brain capacity, just redefining the standard that's always going to be the same or it's just a little bit different based on just what you need. But actually pushing that the responsibility even of the maintenance and telling you, when something needs to be done, back onto the thing that actually needs the maintenance, and then using that quite it's it is quite black and white, which is just saying, Well, based on my knowledge, which you know is learned and built over you know, how the database that you have behind it, and then saying, Okay, cool, well, if you can predict those things, one, you're not wasting resources by doing things before, but then also. You're getting the most life out of your asset but then also it's a safer approach so then you're not waiting till things fail um, which can be quite dramatic I mean some things obviously won't have an impact but bridges and stuff like that or even um, roads and things we don't want those things to be failing so I agree and it's I think from a local government perspective the complexity of all the different services that you offer as well bringing those back into a system and, and using that can significantly save on time, money and resources, which I think resources is a big one. I've been thinking about like the themes of this podcast um, and one of them being, I think, smart communities, resourceful, which is probably, you know, we do talk about time and money and stuff, but from that resourceful perspective, not doing things before we need to do them, but then also not waiting till they fail, which is a much more dramatic effect. Uh, Yeah. Cool. How do you think your region is currently embracing the smart community concept?
1: Uh, Well, we're very much in an internal phase at the moment. So we're working with the councillors and with our staff to normalise the idea of smart cities. So that way, when we start speaking more overtly with the community, we'll already have a good understanding of what smart SMART cities is as an organisation and, and why we're embracing it. And I think that there's going to be nothing worse than council speaking Publicly about smart cities, and then an interesting, interested community member speaks to a staff member about it, and they get a blank stare in return. So, very much the phase we're in is helping all of our staff understand smart cities, how it impacts on the region as a whole, council organisation, and then on that particular staff member and how they do their work. So, it's still very much a ramp up organisational approach. And We've got some runs on the board in terms of smaller projects and we're just at that sort of cusp of starting to scale a few things up.
0: Mm. Can you share some of the projects and things you're working on?
1: Yeah, sure. It's a real list, but I'll see how I go.
0: <laughs> yeah, keep going.
1: Yeah, so the, the meal at Morton Bay is, our, is a university precinct that Council is working is establishing alongside the University of Sunshine Coast we're seeing that as, a, as a, an innovation precinct, as a catalyst for smart city projects. So we've got a number of things going on there in this construction phase. I think there's about 1,500 students arriving the first semester next year. So we're very much in a, a construction phase at the moment. And um, the two main things that we're putting in there, and these are really foundational elements for smart precinct, is a smart lighting network so that we've got about 150 in a hub uh, smart nodes and light nodes uh, going in, and so they' they're about to be um, installed. And we're also working on a an open shared pit and pipe network for all of the telcos to use and share rather than multiple pit and pipe networks for each telco that wants to come in, and we're looking to try and consolidate and bring everyone together into a single pit and pipe network. And the reason we're doing that is to reduce the number of manhole covers and pits and all of those sorts of things on our streetscapes whilst also increasing the amount of choice precinct users have when it comes to getting bandwidth, getting fibre. And also allow, as an innovation precinct, where the, the university are, are looking to collaborate uh, with other organisations at, at the precinct. Obviously, the university itself has multiple buildings in the precinct too, so we want them to be able to uh, have good connectivity and we're going to utilise the, the Pit and Park network for that as well. So that means the university doesn't have to go and dig up the footpath to get links between their buildings. It'll all be part of this single open network. So that's the mill. We've got um, a smart parking project at North Lakes that was co-funded by the federal government's um, Smart Cities and Suburbs Program, and uh, that's about to go live. We've been having a lot of trouble getting the various approvals you need to get some of the hardware that needs to be installed onto the Anjax poles in North Lakes, but I think... As of the last few weeks, that's pretty much resolved. So that project will go live very soon. We just completed, and again, this project is co-funded by the Smart Cities Program. It's a an AI-driven customer request smartphone app. So we we had a, a, an app called MBRC Request, which people in the region can use to submit a request to council. They might report, say, you know, a pothole. Or they might report graffiti or a tree that needs trimming and what we were finding with that app was that uh, whilst people would submit an app and you know when you're using an app you can do that 24 by 7 and they were doing that 24 by 7 but the, the request would sit within the customer services team until business hours to then get processed and allocated to the right council department to deal with the request so what we did is we upgraded the app to modern standards and interface design and we also implemented a piece of middleware effectively, which takes the request and uses a machine learning approach to automatically categorise and fork the request to the appropriate council department. So that's been live since about May and we're getting pretty good results. Our intent or our aim is to have a 90% automation rate. I think we're around about the 80, mid 70s at the moment where that's, you know, we're continuing to improve the Machine learning model to get a better outcome, but that ultimately means that um, that we can provide twenty four by seven service without actually having to have staff here twenty four by seven to process their requests. And obviously, some requests won't actually get done. The work won't be completed until business hours or council staff hours. But there are some teams that do work twenty four by seven. It just depends on what it is. So there's that, it opens that opportunity up. We're just starting to work on us on a smart park, and we're working on a on some. Various things like the control of a new toilet block that's going in in terms of door locks, water flow, meters, water, water flow control, leak detection, et cetera, lighting, but also generally more within the park, um, smart barbecues, bins, parking, you know, people counting, all of those sorts of things. We're really starting to, we're just designing it at the moment to be able to create a prototype that we're going to use across the region for helping out our parks planning team. Verify and confirm the sort of the design decisions that they're making, but also to help the guys in charge of parks operations uh, to again be able to shift from that more scheduled thing to a more proactive, predictive um, park maintenance. Probably the funnest project I'm working on is actually one that I'm working on yourself, Zoe. Is our road defect scanning project, and what we're doing with that project is um, we're using consumer grade dash cams that are attached to a small computing device with a gps and a modem and then we're mounting those to to our at the moment we're in pilot phase so we're mounting them to a couple of ute's and a small garbage truck and the video footage that is being captured as the the vehicles drive along the road is being sent to the cloud and processed and then road defects such as potholes cracking and crocodile cracking and other things like line markings signs, manhole covers, catch pits, et cetera. All of those things, uh, we can capture the defects against those assets, but also we can do asset capture. So we're looking in the near future to do more with the technology to actually repopulate our asset management system with all of the signs that are near roads in the region. And that's working really well because the data is coming through into our asset management system as a defect record against the road and then it's feeding through to our existing business processes that, that are already in place that our operational maintenance teams are using to maintain our roads so it's a, just a great example where we can use a new data source to uh, improve an existing well thought out business process around our our roads maintenance uh, so that's been that's been going really well the intent is to scale that up and we're very close to being able to do that now. We've been pilot testing this for about 12 months and the scale-up will be putting these devices into the curbside pickup garbage trucks which touch every street in the region every week. So that's going to give us, obviously it's going to give give us great intel in relation to potholes on our roads so that they can get fixed in a better way. But also, I would imagine, and we're working with our asset management teams on this, we should be able to have a much better feel for how a road is going in terms of how quickly it's degrading over time. Is that according to expectation? Is that faster than we expected? Is that slower than we expected? If it's faster, is there something we can do to treat the road to arrest that degradation and in so doing delay the need to replace that road? So there's significant capital savings that we could make in the future because we've got a much better understanding of the road asset condition. So that's been a great project using pretty simple technologies and some machine learning and computer vision, but integrating that into our new back-end systems to really to, to bring the whole thing together.
0: Mm. I'm glad to hear that's your most fun project.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yes, it's it's pretty awesome. Just the simplicity of it, and and actually how successful it's it's been.
0: Yeah, no, and I I've, I've really enjoyed working on that one with you as well, James. And while we're on it, i I think the potential for the data is huge as well, like from the asset management perspective. But then also, like you said, we've never had this type or this accuracy, this amount, and then in kind of not real real time but near real time so every week essentially when the truck goes over uh, eventually we'll have a week by week lay of the land uh, which is really exciting and I really enjoy because it's so again like you said it's quite simple I mean the guys doing the machine learning might not
1: they make it look simple they're very smart
0: (laughs) yeah exactly that's the where the smart comes in and then but yeah the engineering benefits of this uh, could be massive and I will be massive I would even say and the savings that councils can have and then once you scale this you can get the learnings not like you know once you scale this you know at your council but then if we could scale this around Australia even around the world eventually you know the actual information that you could gain and then update the standards so then we could be more resourceful at the end of the day is is really huge so yeah I love that project and. I'm looking forward to doing more in that space as well. Yeah. Yeah. Any other ones you'd like to share?
1: Yeah, so I guess two main ones. The first one is that obviously with all of these different projects data is important, so we're working we're developing a smart city data platform using mostly the Azure platform also some AWS components as well. And rather than going and buying, you know, a large monolithic smart city platform that you can go and buy from Telstra or etc. Lots of different vendors out there will sell you one. We were interested in the promise of cloud in the first place, which was if you're not using it much, you don't get charged much, but you can scale it up. You can hyperscale it. So what we found with the project, though, is that whilst we've settled on an architecture for how we will use Azure to support our smart city projects, what we needed was a framework. Now, typically you go and buy software off the shelf, you get the framework, it's, it's how this program runs. Well, you don't get that when you just decide to use a cloud platform like Azure. So uh, we've been working here over the last six months or so to establish a framework right down to things like name conventions for the various components within Azure or AWS that we'll use, different um, patterns for architecture patterns. So, you know, if, you, if you're bringing data in a certain way from a certain kind of device, here's the way that should happen. All that kind of stuff. So that's been pretty exciting, and we're starting to get a few scaled-up components into the Smart City Data Platform. And then, of course, with scale comes a need for a greater number of resources. And at the moment, I'm a team of one. I work alongside IT. I work alongside our traffic and transport teams, customer service, etc. Whatever the project is. But when we start to really scale things up, we're going to need more resources. So we're, we're working on operational technology. So every water utility in the country knows all about operational technology. And uh, typically, it's been separate from IT, but there is a, a move of foot around the place to start to see integration between OT and IT. So we're, we're recognising that, well, we actually had OT because Morton Bay doesn't do water. Um, that's done by the Water Authority. So, we don't have all of the you know, the sewer and, and the water supply and the SCADA systems as a council. But what we do have is building management systems, CCTV, security systems. So there's a lot of stuff all out there. Plus, you add all of our smart city projects together, that's OT. So, we're looking at establishing an OT team at the moment, which will sit as a part of IT. So, you've got that benefit of... Things like cybersecurity, which is strong within IT, but potentially weak within a, your typical OT team, but also then the domain knowledge within OT, which often I, IT lacks. So the domain knowledge being specialist understanding of processes, you know, say to do with a, a building and the building management system. So there are the, sort the, of those two things: the, the building of an, an OT team, the smart city platform. Really, they're you the know, sort of the, the undergirding foundational things that we need to get in place, which are the oh, way uh, to being done.
0: Ah, Awesome. And I think that's so important, the OT team, and I think a lot of councils need to start planning for that as well, like, like you've said and what you've kind of discovered is the skill sets required in there as well, what they'll look like. And they may not be people in council right now there will be a combination of people with that um, domain knowledge like you were saying but then also bringing in different skill sets to i don't know uh, maintain the technology or continue to i guess project manage these projects and in a different way because it's a bit different and stuff like that so
1: one of the a couple of the key skill sets within the team that we're and this is still in planning phase we haven't got budget approval or anything like that but that's this is sort of where we're this is our thinking, is to have not only project management and various IT skills like cloud skills, analytics, machine learning skills, and then those domain skills where we're looking to second people from other parts of the business. But we also need really good capabilities in relation to engagement, stakeholder management, that kind of stuff, because we're interested in, you know, this is horizontally across the organisation. This needs to engage quite deeply. Across the organisation, and uh, to do that, you need people who know how to work with people, as well as people who know how to deal with tech and how to deal with buildings, etc. We actually need that good sort of facilitation and collaboration skills.
0: Mm, no, I love that, and thanks for adding that on because, yeah, again, that's so important, and I think can get missed because it's not kind of hard, and. Yeah, I think that's really important. And particularly coming from chief digital officer, I think it makes it more legitimate to kind of go, Well, these are the people I need in my team. So yeah, that's really good. Okay, well, that kind of leads to this next question, which is um integration. So how do you think we can better integrate, you know, across these different disciplines, governments, I'm talking about community and industries? Look, I think that there's we're very much that there's a massive opportunity and
1: in Australia. And it's interesting to compare Australia with Europe, with the US. For many years, there's been a lot of talk about, say, the advantage of a smart lighting network and how there's reductions in power and costs and things like that. But also, uh, you're able to then start to innovate by putting sensors out in the street and things like that. But in Australia, it's a bit different to how lighting is managed in the public realm. So And what we're finding as a local government is we're very much at the coalface of much of this work, but we're also noticing the headwinds that the state and federal governments could assist with. So whilst there's been federal funding, which has been appreciated like the Smart Cities and Suburbs program, I, I believe that there does need to be more attention by both federal and state government in relation to how things are regulated and the unintended consequences of those regulations. So, for example, the SMART. Lighting networks are often cited, as I said, in, in uh, other countries as a great way to enable smart cities, but there's no practical way to achieve that in, as in Queensland because Energy Queensland hold the keys to the network of light poles around the state. And I'm not saying anything against them in any way, but they've got their own issues, their own priorities to deal with, their own balance sheets to manage, etc. And smart city collaboration hasn't so far appeared to be a high priority. And certainly nobody's called me. <laughs> Maybe they're speaking to others. But certainly there's an opportunity here. Now, if you, to, and the opportunity is, is in hosting a lot of the technologies which are coming our way. So obviously, things like the rollout of 5G is a big one, the rollout of IoT networks is a big one. And these things are foundational technologies that enable smart cities. So the telcos, uh, local, state and federal governments need to really coordinate to ensure that that rollout can happen swiftly and it can happen in a way that doesn't further clutter our streetscapes, it can happen in a way that is commercially viable for the telcos and I'm talking here about what are the, the hoops that they have to jump through from a local, state and federal level, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a great opportunity right here, right now for, local, state and federal governments to, to get our heads together to figure out, well, what is the best way to streamline all of this so that we get get a great outcome, not from a, just a bandwidth and a telco perspective, but also from a, a public amenity perspective as well.
0: Mm, no, that's so important too. And I think that regulation, and I really like the, what you said about the unintended consequences of that and then being able to collaborate or integrate or whatever we want to call it, but it's essentially just talking and making decisions about those things with all those people that are going to be affected at the table. So then we can actually, you know, move forward in this smart city space. Yeah. Okay. So what are the emerging trends that people aren't talking about enough?
1: <laughs> I don't know. Um, I got, I'm got. i sort of head down, but I'm not doing this stuff, so I, I don't look up much. But um, uh, one thing I, I do hear about a lot is standards and the need for standards and, and i guess i've yet to really get why it's so important shoot me down but anyway and i'm not saying that that we don't need standards but i think that data isn't that difficult to transform on an as-needs basis and in fact that's how data lake technology works so you can transform it into the standard that you need fairly easily so for example we've got various sensors like bin sensors and parking sensors etc etc rain gauges and I'm storing all of the data that comes from those in its native format from the manufacturer. So that's a proprietary format, it's that's not particularly standard, other than it arrives as a JSON data object, typically through some sort of RESTful API. So that's, I guess, that's, that's a good standard. But the data format itself is proprietary. But then when I go to use it, I'm interested in using things like, say, the Fireware data standard, things like that, when I'm publishing this data through our open data portal. But I'm not so precious and I'm, I'm not about the fact that it arrives to me in a certain format because I can relatively easily change it. So, you know, I transform it to whatever it needs to be on use rather than before it goes into the storage. So that's sort of where I'm at with that at the moment. I guess if there were standards that could help multiple governments to create a regional dashboard, for example, then that would be good, but again... That can be a transformation of the data once we decide to embark upon such a project so i guess i don't know if that's an emerging trend but that's sort of that's what i've come up with there
0: yeah no that's really interesting and i think uh, for me when i talk about standards it's hard to say you know that i need exact standards for you know something in particular until you actually doing it and then realizing that you know you might have all these different sources. But what you're saying, I guess, is that you can kind of create your own standard, or like you can accept it in whatever way. So the interoperability is there. That's the important thing. And then you've got the certain standard within Morton Bay, which then you'll you'll use it however you're going to use it. And I guess you've got the skill set in house to be able to do that. So I guess maybe the standard is when so then anyone, I guess, can t- can use that data uh, without having to manipulate.
1: Yeah, yeah, certainly when we publish to, say, our open data portal, we will pick a standard that's appropriate. At the moment, Fireware seems to be quite a good one that we're, we're looking into.
0: Mm. The other thing I was thinking about, and I was talking to somebody the other day about standards is like the engineering standards. So, for example, with our pavement recognition technology, when will there be a point where, because obviously there's, you have to, you know, a pavement engineer is going to say what level, like, defect that is and all those type of things. You know, we're not there yet, as in the machine isn't going to be able to sign off to say, oh, yes, this is, you know, whatever level and uh, we can estimate that. But from an engineering rigour perspective, will we ever be able to have a standard that says the technology must must do ABCD, whatever, however that looks like, whatever the architecture looks like, to be able to then make an engineering decision about something. Well,
1: one thing that we we are concentrating on with the Pothole Project is when the, and actually we're, we're augmenting the Pothole Project with a stormwater pipe scanning project using similar technology. And in both of those contexts, roads and pipes, there are engineering standards around types and severities of defects. So we are saying to the vendor, please deliver us the data using those, those standards and frameworks. So, yeah, there is, there's certainly something we said there. It's less of a data standard. More, it's more of an engineering standard, which is delivered as data. But, um, yeah, so there's certainly, that's important, and a lot of that work from the various engineer, you'd know more than I would about that stuff. Um, <laughs> Organisations are establishing and have established a lot of those over the years.
0: Yeah, I think it will be really interesting because basically we're both talking about data and kind of engineering standards, but it's from different angles and how much those things will come together. And obviously, they're very specific examples, but think about that um, multiplied. That will be really interesting. And the skill sets that you'll um, need in those conversations and to develop and maintain those standards will also be a really interesting field. Okay, well, James, it's been so great to chat with you. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and giving up your time to have a chat with me today. So I really appreciate it. No worries. I just have one last question, which is how can people connect with you?
1: Sure, they can either ring the council, just ring the front desk, it's on our website, or um, just shoot me an email, which is james.pete at mortonbay.qld.gov.au.
0: Excellent. We'll put the links in the show notes so people can click away and find you. Great. Thanks again for coming on to the podcast. Talk soon.
1: No worries. Thank you very much. I'll catch you later. Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the Smart Community Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes are available on our website, mysmart.community/podcast. If you have any questions for us or any of our guests, you can email hello at mysmart.community. You can also find us on the socials. We are on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at SmartComHQ. That's com with two Ms. If you are enjoying the podcast, please hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we would love for you to leave us a rating and review at wherever you listen. This really helps us reach more ears and eyes. So thank you for your support. As always, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for.